All right, chapter 10, verses one through four. Now, um, I wanna ask our production crew to throw up on here. Uh, I, I threw up a graph last week that showed you we've been in these series of judgments, uh, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then we'll be in the bull judgments. And these are three series of judgments, and, there, and there's seven of them, uh, and, and, and there's three. And so uh, what I did last week was just show you one graph, one image with all of them on there, and I saw or felt the confusion in the room, okay? So I'm hoping we separated them out. And so what, what we wanna do is just give you kind of a general understanding of how people lay out um, these judgments, all right? And so uh, what we see here is they're all together, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls. And what this view is, uh, is that as we're walking through these judgments, they're all showing you something different within the same time frame. Okay, so it's all happening at the same time, uh, and and they're and they're just giving you different perspectives, similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, right? Uh, all gospel accounts of Jesus's life, right? Telling the story of who Jesus is from different perspectives, but happening at the same time. So that is that. Uh, the next one is reading it very literal and just going right through it, right? And so what do you have? You have seven seals after those seven are done. Then you got seven trumpets. After they're done, you have seven bulls, right? So that you would say, hey, there's 21 judgments. They're separate, they're distinct, and they're all rolled out like that. The last major view of these judgments uh, is essentially that some are contained within each other, all right? And, and I think that helps a little bit. To be honest, this one, it's just a little rough, okay? So you just gotta deal with it, okay? Uh, but for some of you, you're like, that's my role, that's my position, that's where I land. Fantastic, okay? And so there it is. Uh, and that kind of just helps you understand uh, how different people lay these out and see these as we walk through them, okay? So we've walked through the seven seals, we've walked through six trumpet judgments, and now in chapter 10, let's start off. It says in verse one, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a, roaring, like a lion roaring when he called out the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Okay, so we've been walking through this just devastating judgment, right, that we've been seeing each week. And all of a sudden, it's interrupted, isn't it? It's interrupted with this phrase that John says, then I saw. Now, we have to pay attention to that because remember, what is our goal here? To understand the book of Revelation, we have to try our best to understand what John is seeing, don't we? And so when he, whenever he says, then I saw, he's telling us that now he's, he's seen a whole different image, a whole different picture that he's about to explain as best he can. And how he's going to explain it is through what? Through the Old Testament. 
So he's going to bring us back and describe based upon how he communicates and what he knows from what Old Testament prophets saw. He's going to try and describe to us and we're left going, okay, what was that? All right. And so we see this, this judgment is interrupted. And all of a sudden John says, then I saw, what does he see? He describes this mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, as you walk through the description of this angel, you'll notice a lot of similarities to chapter one uh, as it describes the glorified Christ. Uh, you'll see uh, also allusions to who Jesus, how Jesus was described in the Old Testament. You'll see Daniel 7, 13 and 14, when it talks about coming in the clouds, um, a rainbow over his head. Uh, that's language about God from Ezekiel chapter 1, 26 through 28. We see that the angel's face was, was like the sun, brilliant and radiant, and his legs, it says, were like fiery pillars, okay? Um, now, there's two, uh, two strong opinions here that you could have. Uh, one is that because of all the language that points to Jesus, some will say, this is Jesus. Okay, this is Jesus, all right? Uh, others will say, this isn't Jesus, this is his representative, right? This is uh, that angel, uh, and, and if it is an angel, some, some say it's the angel Michael, this angel is described more than any other angel in Scripture, if it is. Okay, but those are kind of the two strong points here that we see. And we're told that this angel has this little scroll, this little scroll. Now, uh, we don't know if it's, it's the seal, if it's the sealed book uh, that we looked at in chapter uh, five, uh, but we see that, that this angel has this sealed uh, scroll. And then also with this uh, sealed scroll, or it's not sealed, it's, it's a little scroll, he has this scroll. He's also demonstrating his authority because one foot is in the water and we see one foot on land, right? And so essentially this, this angel is demonstrating that God has authority to speak and to act and, and, and his authority is over all of the earth, all of the sea, okay? So, so we're seeing this authority being symbolized and then he calls out in this loud voice, like a, like a roaring lion, right? Which once again, we see the imagery of Jesus here. And his cry is accompanied by seven thunders. And these seven thunders, they weren't just like thunder, like, like you and I hear thunder, but these thunders actually spoke, right? They said something. Um, and, and, and when we think about these seven thunders, what we believe is what they're announcing is more judgment, right? That they're announcing an additional seven uh, judgments, seven perspectives, and, and they've already sounded, so it's not like, what did that mean? Like, they've already sounded, and, and they're ready to act on the earth, and John has heard what they said, and what? He's ready to write it down. Like, he's, he's like, boom, all right, okay? But then he hears a voice from heaven that says, What? Seal up what the seven thunders said. Do not write it down. Okay, don't write it down. Now, our natural question is what? Why? <laughs> right, I thought the whole purpose of this book was like reveal, open. Like, what are you doing right there with the clothes, you know? Um, and in fact, we know that all throughout Revelation, it's about revealing. And, and, but we saw a similar language with, with Daniel. Daniel was told to seal it up. 
right, till the end of time, what he saw. And, and so, you know, the, the honest answer is this. We don't know what and we don't know why. We don't know why. But I'm reminded of, of the verse that I shared with you last week in Deuteronomy 29, 29, where it tells us the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That means that the things that we need to know from God, he clearly communicates and articulates in scripture. The, the things that, that, um, that we don't need to know right now, we don't need to know right now. And it's in those moments where we demonstrate two things, right? We either demonstrate this wonder and this mystery um, and, and this trust in this perfect and holy God. And we go, God, I don't understand but you are incredible. And so um, I'm, I'm excited to see what this actually is. And so, and so God, if I need to know, show me. Uh, if not, God, you're incredible. And, and what I do know is enough for me. And what that reveals when we respond like that is, is honestly our thoughts of God, doesn't it? Because I think for, for us, we, we tend to react one of two ways. We either react that way and we go, God, uh, you're so incredible. Even what I don't know, even the answers that I don't have, even when I don't know the why here, I trust you because you are so good. So that's one position. And that really shows where I'm at with God. But there's another position, right? There's the position of God, why don't I know? God, why are you holding me back? God, why don't you tell me what I'm supposed to do here? Why doesn't it say in scripture how I'm supposed to handle this specific thing, God? Like what's wrong, right? And what that shows is, is not a trust, but honestly, a distrust, doesn't it? It shows, and it also shows that I'm kind of approaching my relationship with God like you have to deliver for me, okay? And, and what that, what's that, man, it's, it's like a window into your heart, isn't it? And, and so we have to pay attention to that. Um, in verses five through seven, we keep going. It says, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets." Okay, so, so this angel that he's seeing all of a sudden raises his, his right hand towards heaven and he swears this oath, right? Uh, in the name of the living God who lives forever and ever. And he's, and he's saying, now is the time. Before God and these witnesses, now is the time. There is no more delay. Now in heaven, there was probably a collective amen at this moment. Because remember, in, in chapter 6, the saints are, 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 that are there in heaven with God are like, God, now is it time? Is it time? Is it time? And here he says, now it is time. This is it. This is that showdown, right? God and evil. This, this cosmic, you know, uh, showdown that we've been waiting for, and now it's going to happen. And we also see that when the seventh angel sounds that trumpet, the mysterious plan, it says, of God will be completed or it will be finished. It will be fully revealed. That completion uh, that was declared to his servants and his prophets and, and, and so this is an exciting, exciting moment. We don't want to just glaze through this. You guys, this is the moment when the mystery, when the wonder, when God, how are you going to lay all this out? He says, now you're going to know. 
And so, and so everyone's excited. They're hanging on to this. I mean, even Daniel, when he's seen these images, you guys, he didn't know. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, look at what, look at what Daniel says. We're like, no, he didn't say that. He did. He says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Daniel's like, God, what in the world? I don't, I'm a pretty wise guy. What are you doing? And then what's the end of this? And we see right here, the mystery, the mystery is revealed. The end is revealed. It's all open. Nothing is left concealed as far as the mystery of God's plan, his purpose from creation to redemption. It was all made possible through the blood of the lamb. And it's now being revealed to John, the author who's seen this incredible imagery. And the message is so simple. It's time. It's come. God's kingdom is now going to be established with everything that he's willed all the way from eternity till now. And the enemy will be defeated. And you guys, what you see here is this is gospel language. I mean, this is gospel language. When you think of the gospel and, and, and how uh, in the Old Testament, they're all pointing to the gospel, anticipating the gospel of the arrival, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the penalty, right? The resurrection, the victory over sin and death. And that's why you see that being alluded to throughout the New Testament as this wonderful mystery, right? Uh, Paul uh, talks about it in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, verses nine and 10. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then later in Ephesians six nineteen, he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Okay, so we see this gospel language, and, and what a powerful image for us, um, you guys, and, and, and what a great thing to know that, that once again, God is demonstrating what I have said is going to happen will happen. God cannot deny himself. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. Guys, we're going to fail him, okay? You and I, we're going to fail him. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail over and over again. But he will not fail us. He promises that. And we get to cling to that. And it's just, you read that and you go, are you kidding me, God? Because I'm, I'm pretty aware that I don't measure up. I'm pretty aware that, that I fail uh, more times than I wish or care to admit, right? And so we keep going here. In, in verse 8, it says this. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings." Okay, so John is told to go and to take the scroll, right? Go get the scroll from the angel. You're, I mean, okay, right? This magnificent, marvelous angel could be Christ, and I'm supposed to walk up and say, hey, give me that scroll. 
So John walks up, asks for the scroll, and as he asks for the scroll, what does the angel tell him to do? Okay, this is where we really get like messed with, right? The angel says, take it, and then do what? That's strong. That was a really strong response there. Take it, that's good. Take it and eat it, right? And at that point, you're like, yeah, that's why I don't read this book. Um, like, what in the world is it saying, right? So he says, take it. Don't just take it, but I want you to eat it. And what you're seeing here is, once again, John using imagery and language from the Old Testament, okay? In fact, uh, in Jeremiah 15, 16, uh, we see the prophet say, your words were found, and he says, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Okay, we, we see in Ezekiel chapter two, verse, uh, verse nine, it says, and when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it and he spread it before me and it had writing on the front and on the back and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Does this help? Either helps you or you're just even more just like distraught over what you're reading. He's, he's going back to the Old Testament again. He's, he's, he's using language. He's going, man, that's, that's exactly what happened. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, that's exactly what happened. And now I'm experiencing this. And you guys, what a powerful image on how we're to relate to God's word, right? I mean, I mean, when, when you think about how we're called to approach God's word, um, you know, there's different mindsets that we'll have. Like, like some of us, most of us probably have a Bible of some kind in our home, um, you know, or we have the Bible app, right? And, and we, we will actually say, oh, I appreciate the Bible. Like, I, 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 you know, I'll, I'll read it every now and again. I'll go to church and I'll listen to them talk about uh, the Bible. I follow some Christians on like social media, right? So there's this appreciation for it. Like I call it walking up to like a storefront where they like cook the food, uh, you know, and they have the clear glass and you look at it and you go, yeah, I want that, right? But it's the difference between appreciating it versus consuming it. And you guys, when it comes to God's word, we're not called to appreciate it. We're not called to look at it. We're not called to acknowledge it. We're not called to just read it. We are called to consume it, to actually uh, take it in. In fact, that's why we see scripture alluded to as honey. Uh, it's said to be better than bread. It's called meat. It's called uh, milk. You guys, it is our spiritual diet. If I am not consistently in God's word, studying it, growing it, learning it, you guys, I am in a state of spiritual starvation. There is no way to say I'm healthy. Like, I can't. It's an impossibility. If I'm not reading God's word, I cannot stand up here uh, and say, man, I'm, ah, I'm thriving in my relationship with Jesus. You just can't say it. Because this is the spiritual diet. There is no nourishment without it, okay? Uh, when it comes to our bodies, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, like if you're not eating right, if you're not being healthy, you, there's no way that you walk up to people and, and they go, how are you doing physically? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm so just, uh, I'm, I feel awful, but I'm doing really good. And guys, that's, 
Is that not us spiritually? How many times someone say, how are you doing? How are you doing in your relationship with God? I'm great. I'm good. God's good. Right? Anything to get out of that conversation, right? Can I pray for you? Ah, right? That's when it gets uncomfortable, right? But anything to just remove that, that question so I don't have to deal with it. Why? Because I don't want to deal with how, health, how unhealthy I actually am. And, he, and, and, and he's saying, listen, this is not something to just take. Don't just take this scroll. You consume this, this scroll. And, and, and he says what? That as you consume it, it's going to be sweet in your mouth and it's going to be bitter to your stomach. What is it talking about here? The sweetness of the gospel, the sweetness of God's word, the sweetness of the message, you guys, uh, is the gospel, isn't it? When you, when you read it, when you understand what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me, when he took your sins and he put them up there on the cross, when he paid the penalty that you and I couldn't pay, when he resurrected from the dead, having victory over sin and death and inviting you into a relationship, right, with a, the perfect and holy God through that work and knowing that you can now have that, like you read that and it's just sweet, isn't it? It's sweet to know that, that daily I can live in light of grace and mercy, that's gonna meet me there. That is so sweet. It's sweet to know that I can pray, that I can cry out, that he hears me, that he listens to me. Those are all incredible things. But how is it bitter? It's bitter because we also read that there, there's judgment. There's judgment for people that are not gonna receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, for people that are gonna deny him. And that's bitter, that hurts. Like there's nobody that reads that and, and, and isn't alarmed. In fact, Paul in, cha uh, in Romans chapter nine, he, he, he talks about, he's so um, distraught over that truth that he says, I wish I could just change places with him. Like that's Paul. And so there's sweetness, but there's bitterness when you read, man, like man, people, people are gonna be held accountable for the decisions they make, like, like people that don't receive him, there's gonna be judgment for that. The other thing that's bitter, that's, that's tough, is the reality that it tells us, if we're gonna follow Jesus, that there is suffering. There's suffering. And, and I don't know anybody that's read that and been like, oh, that's so sweet. No, we try to avoid that. But that's what we see. And so we see this dynamic uh, of joy and sorrow, sweetness and bitterness, and then we see how John here is then um, commissioned by God, or I should actually say recommissioned by God, uh, because uh, God tells him essentially, you must again, it says, again, you were doing it before. I need you to do it again. You're going to prophesy, preach, and proclaim what's been happening, what's, what's happening now, and what's going to come. And what I love about this is we've been seeing all this judgment, right? This devastation worldwide. And during this pause, God says, listen, don't fold up shop. Don't be like, well, it's all happening. Good luck, right? Even so, come Lord Jesus. No, he says, I want to recommission you out to be prophesying again. You need to be uh, speaking the gospel. You need to be uh, sharing what's going on because even in light of this judgment, I'm gonna work. And so he's recommissioned to do that. You guys, some of you right now, he's trying to recommission you. You used to share, you used to be public, you used to um, talk to people about God and the things of God and, and that, and, and, and for whatever reason, that's no longer a part of your life. I'll tell you probably why it's not a part of your life. You've stopped consuming God's word. That's why he says, first, you, you eat this. 
And so you guys, my question first and foremost to us in this room is, have we, have we stopped internalizing the word of God? Is this a part of your life? And then out of that, are you sharing it? Are you sharing that good news? And then in chapter 11, let's, let's go to verses one and two. It says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, guys, this, this gets tough. Like there's no easy way to, to, to do this, all right? Like we're in a, we're in a difficult section here um, and there's a lot that's, that, that a lot of people try to fill in the gaps. And so I'm gonna try and do my best to give you kind of just different perspectives in how we can approach this uh, section and hopefully uh, not, leave, not, uh, not cause you to leave here with your head spinning. That's the goal, all right? But essentially, John is given this, this measuring reed. It says like a staff. And, and just think of like this modern yardstick, okay, that he's given. And he's then told to go and to measure God's temple and the altar, and then count those who worship there. Now, the Old Testament background for this comes from Ezekiel chapter 40, verses, or chapters 40 through chapter 42. And the idea here, when they're measuring like this, is, the, is, is it's communicating ownership and protection. So, so what he's doing there is, is essentially demonstrating that God owns all of this. This is all under God's sovereign hand of uh, protection. And John's told, as you measure, exclude the court outside the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations and they will trample the holy city, it says, for 42 months. Now, the, the first question is this. What in the world is God's temple here? Like, what is it talking about? Because there's a couple different ways you could take that, right? Is this, is this an actual historical temple uh, or is this a spiritual temple, right? And, and when you think of like historical uh, temples, there were two historical temples uh, before that time. We have Solomon's temple, right, which was incredible, uh, but, but King Solomon's temple was destroyed 587, 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar. And then later, Zerubbabel, uh, who you should name your kid that, um, does, builds another one, right? And then Herod the Great expands that temple. But we know in 70 AD, the Romans absolutely flatten it, destroy it, march over it. In fact, some view this as it's alluding back to that because it's already happened. So that's a, that's a view that some people have from this. Um, but, but when we think about uh, the historical temple versus a spiritual uh, temple, uh, we, we see that Jesus actually used the image of a temple when he referred to himself. In John chapter two, uh, verses 19 through 22, it says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus refers to himself spiritually as the temple. The church is called the sanctuary of God throughout the New Testament. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in you. Okay, so, so the sanctuary that, that we see here in Revelation and throughout the book of Revelation, it's referred to as both the place where God's present and it's also alluded to in the book of Revelation as, as to God himself. So how are we to unpack this and understand it? Well, uh, for some, uh, they look at this and they say, this temple, it represents the church. So this represents the, the spiritual Israel, the church. This is the Christian uh, community. And then others uh, would, would say, no, this is a literal temple that's going to be built uh, during the millennial time. And, um, and, 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 and they're going to say that Jesus alluded to this in Matthew 24 and that Paul did in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when they were talking about future times. Okay. Um, now, who are the ones that are going to worship in this sanctuary, in this temple? Okay, the question is, are, are, are these Jews who, uh, who worship and believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Or is it Jews who are there and they're worshiping, and it's actually they're worshiping in unbelief? Because some people see this as, as, as a prophecy for the preservation and the ultimate salvation of all the Jewish people. Okay, so that's a, that's a view. Um, in, in fact, during those days, a very common question uh, that, that Jewish Christians would ask is, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? Because remember, there was intense opposition from the synagogue uh, to these Christian Jews. And so, uh, in fact, in Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And he actually dedicates three chapters in the book of, Roman, in the book of Romans to, to this problem. And in Romans eleven twenty six, he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, he's either speaking to the literal Israel, or he is speaking to the spiritual Israel, right? Uh, the church. And, and so he's speaking to one of those two things uh, as, as he's communicating this. Now, what is this, this holy city? Where is this taking place? Well, you know, John's first century audience, they would have alluded to, they would have thought of Jerusalem. Um, but uh, some look at this and go, man, this represents the church, right? So this is the church that he's talking about. So there's this aspect of this future heavenly Jerusalem as well in this. And, and I know that doesn't clear everything up for you. You're like, well, there's, there's a lot of different views here. There are. There's a lot of different views. Um, how do we understand the 42 months? Well, that's an easy one, right? Well, some take the 42 months to be three and a half years, right? A specific three and a half years. Believe it aligns with Daniel chapter nine when it talks about this. Um, and then others take that to mean it's a specific uh, amount of time that, that, that is communicating it's short. It's a very short amount of time, okay? And, but regardless of the exact position on that that, that's, that we're gonna take, what we need to remind ourselves is that what is absolutely certain here is God's plan is moving forward, okay? God's plan is moving forward. So as we sit here and we go, man, how many weeks was that? What was it? How many, well, what's a short period of time? And who are these people? And is it God or is it the, this literal temple and that? 
what you have to come away here going is, Jesus is coming back and his plans right now are being accomplished and they're being fulfilled and he's showing incredible grace here. Like he's talking about saving people, isn't it? I mean, so this is an exciting thing. We keep going here in verses three through six, it says this, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Okay, so as we're seeing this intense opposition, right, uh, over the, the holy city, the nations trampling uh, for 42 months, we read, what we see happening during this time, which is so exciting, is that this, at the exact same time, God is going to raise up what he calls two witnesses who are going to come in incredible power, right? In fact, what, what, what's the power we see uh, being spoken of here? These are miracles uh, that we saw, plagues that, that we saw coming through the power of Moses and Elijah. Okay, so, so these witnesses uh, are going to come and, and, and they're going to pro proclaim the word of God. They're going to display his power and no one is going to harm them until they're done. I love that. Do you guys know that you are absolutely invincible until God's plan for your life is accomplished and done. Do you realize the confidence that you can have knowing that his will for your life is gonna be accomplished? That, that although we're like, man, they're gonna derail it, man, they're gonna, no, he's got you. His plan will be accomplished. And he says, they are untouchable until my plan for them is accomplished. Now, the question naturally arises, so who are they, right? Who are these witnesses? Now, I made a mistake the first gathering. I read them a list of all the options. That was a mistake, okay? Um, but I learn each gathering. So I'm gonna give you the two most likely, amen? Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna be helpful with that. So the, 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 the two most likely, the, the two prominent views here as to who these two witnesses are, the one is that these are two specific individuals that are going to be prophets during that time, right? And they're gonna have that same power and authority, Elijah uh, and Moses. And, and so it's gonna be two specific people. Okay, the other view that I would say is probably the other most prominent view um, is that this is the church, that this is the church that's gonna be the witness, okay? And, and, and what we see also here in, uh, in some of the imagery and, and the symbolism is, is once again, the, the number two, okay? Now, why is two important? Well, remember, Jesus sent them out uh, when he was walking on the earth. He sent them out in twos, right? Sent them out in twos. Why? Because in the court of law, everything uh, had to be substantiated by one other witness, 
Okay, so without another witness, uh, it couldn't be substantiated in the court of law in those days. And so there had to be two witnesses. And so there's these two witnesses, whether they're these two individuals, some actually believe it's Moses and Elijah. Maybe you believe that. We don't know who they are. Or it's, it's the church that has been empowered to deliver this incredible message for this time because it says, the text says they're gonna prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Uh, so there's a defined amount of time here. Uh, and it says they're going to be wearing sackcloth, uh, these garments of grief, of humility, of mourning, of repentance. And, and their ministry, uh, it's described as, as two olive trees and two lampstands um, as they represent Christ on the earth. And, and we get this imagery back from Zechariah chapter four. And, and essentially olive trees provided the oil for the lamps. Okay, so that's kind of the imagery here, is is that the olive trees were responsible for for providing the oil that was used to light the lamps. And so these prophets, these spokespeople, they are the ones that are to be the light, right? And, And they have the olive tree, they have the Holy Spirit of God empowering them so that that light does not go out. They are gonna accomplish as light bearers, what they need to accomplish. And they are untouchable until their work is done. So they're going out there in the midst of this, displaying the incredible power of God, pleading with people to repent and respond. And then in verse seven, it says, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay, so what, what happened here with these witnesses? Well, they finish their task, right? They finish their testimony before the world. And we see that this beast and this beast He's going to be talked about a lot. In fact, he's mentioned 36 times in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be focusing on him in chapters 13 and 17. Uh, We're going to be reading a lot about the beast, all right? Um, And and so I don't want to unpack all of that, but what we know is this beast who describes as coming out of that abyss where the demons have been held, he's going to come out of this, and he's going to be empowered. He's going to be emboldened through Satan, and, and he's going to rise and have a prominent position. He's going to manipulate people. He's going to be this, this, this antichrist figure, right? He's going to be uh, one that fools and tricks people. Um, and, and so he's going to rise up to power, and ultimately, he is going to lead a war against these witnesses and have them murdered. 
And, 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 and this just, this blows my mind. I mean, the imagery here, that, 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 and, and however you want to see this, it's not a good, it's not a good picture. And in fact, it shows just how far gone humanity is. So, so they're murdered, they're left in the street, and they're refused a burial. I just want the imagery here. They're not even allowed a burial. And not only that, because they don't want any honor going to them. Not only that, they start celebrating that and, and giving each other gifts like they've just instituted a new holiday. Like, do you understand how warped humanity is? How far gone we, we get here? The fact that, that the, the only joy, the only rejoicing that takes place within humanity at this point in time is over these dead witnesses. That's what they're celebrating. And they're not just celebrating it. It's, it's like Christmas in my home. They're like giving each other gifts in celebration of those individuals laying there. Doesn't that just break your heart? You think of just how evil we can become. And after three and a half days, though, and I love it. This is the great thing about Scripture. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And it says they stood to their feet. They are resurrected. So they are resurrected. And it says, great fear fell on all who saw that. Okay, so, so they're resurrected. It's not like, it's not quiet. It's not in secret. It's not like everybody went to sleep one night. They woke up and they check the street, and they're gone. No, they get up. People are walking around. They're up. They're resurrected to life. And then what does this say? <laughs> they ascend up to heaven as all of the enemies are watching them. They literally rise up to heaven. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen, but I got to imagine there's a lot of phones that are going to go up at that moment, Right? I mean, you see that. I mean, you, I mean, that's how we are these days. We can't appreciate a moment, right? We got to have our phone up, right? And, and so immediately, a whole bunch of phones are going to go up, right? People are going to be like, look at them. They are ascending up to heaven. The enemies are going to watch this. This is, this is historic. This isn't like, hey, she said, she said, they said. Like, no, like we saw it. This is public. This is part of history. All of humanity is going to see and watch as they are literally brought up, ascending to heaven. And, 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 and so when this uh, happens, and, and some look at this and go, man, this is the rapture. Uh, this, is, this is the rapture. This is the resurrection of the church. Or this is the conversion of Israel being referenced here. But the bottom line is clear. God, one, he wins. And two, he fulfills his promises to his saints. Fulfills his promises. And then we see judgment happens, right? On the evil people here, judgment, an earthquake, all these people are killed. And those who remained were terrified and they end up giving glory to God. End up giving him glory. And then we end with verses 15, 19 through 19. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God 
saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Okay, so there we are. You're like, finally, the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet sounds, right? And it's accompanied by these loud voices in heaven. And, and literally, uh, they're declaring that the kingdom of God uh, has come to this world and, and that Jesus, and Jesus is now gonna reign forever. And we see the redeemed who are represented here by these 24 elders. They fall on their faces in this incredible posture of worship and praise. And they start singing this song to him. They start crying out and singing to him and they're praising him for who he is. They're praising him for his answer, for his response that it has come. They're praising him for dealing with evil, for the wrath that has been delivered. They're praising him for now what's about to take place. Uh, the enemies are about to be completely and finally dealt with and those who receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior are to be welcomed in and they're gonna be actually rewarded for how they lived, for how they followed uh, Jesus and so they're speaking to all of this and they're just worshiping him. And then don't miss this. In response to this incredible scene of worship, what happens? Well, all of a sudden, the ark just starts rising up. The temple of God in heaven is opened with the ark of the covenant visible now for all to see. In other words, it's no longer in this super secret room that only the high priest can go in. No, it is now there and it is available for all of Jesus' followers from all time to there be in the very presence of God, the fullness of God. And through the blood of the lamb, that now is fully realized. And there they are just worshiping in that, experiencing the fullness of his presence. And we see this incredible vision is accompanied by, once again, these flashes of lightning, the rumblings of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hail. He's faithful. He's faithful. And I, and I just want to say this to you guys. The, so, so often we get into the judgment, we get into this wrath, and we're just like, man, God, oh God, why do you do that? What's wrong with you? And, and I just think we have the wrong perception and view of even what wrath is when it comes to studying the Word of God. You guys... If the last four years, three years have taught us anything, it's we care deeply about justice, don't we? Right? I think, I think we, we've seen that. We all care deeply about justice. We all care about uh, justice uh, being one. We care that. We care for that. For whether it's marginalized people, we care about that for our own families, for our own lives, right? Um, we think, you know, some of you are parents in this room and you're like, man, don't you mess with my kid. I want justice for my kid. Right? And, and so we demand that. We expect that. We're looking for that. We're praying for it, aren't we? We're like, God, deal with that. Make it right. Now, our definitions of justice are, are sometimes off, aren't they? But every single one of us, whether we're a Jesus follower or we're, whether we want nothing to do with God, we're all crying out. We're all advocating for justice. And what you need to know is this. Out of his incredible love, God is responding. He's responding. 
And, and, and his, his wrath, this, this judgment that we're reading, we're like, man, it's so awful, it's evil. He is making things right, you guys, because he loves us. And so, and so we, we sit here and we're like, God, make it right. Bring justice, right? And he's going, I am, I will, and it's going to happen. And so you guys, we can't pray for justice and then go, God, why are you doing that? He's like, this is a display and an act of love. I am making things right. I'm committed to it. And so you guys, let's, let's rearrange our view here a little bit. He is a just God. He loves us. And even in this wrath, he's demonstrating love. He is not an out-of-control parent or coach screaming at you. No, it is all coming from a place of love. And he's committed to making things right. Amen? And part of that is your salvation, which is amazing. And so right now, we're just going to sing. We're going to respond. But I want to ask you this. Are you, right now, are you consuming God's word? And are you prepared for what he just may be commissioning or recommissioning you to do?